Today we come to a very famous passage of the Bible. That is Peter's thrice denial of Jesus. Peter denies Jesus three times. But I want to encourage you uh, to look at this situation with fresh eyes as we see how it's placed in the the overarching narrative, what, what the gospel is actually trying to tell us. Now, we often rail on Peter as this kind of, and I include myself, I often kind of point the finger at, P, uh, at Peter, but we kind of see him as this spineless, sword-happy buffoon who doesn't take Jesus as seriously as Jesus takes him. And there's some truth to that, uh, but the truth isn't any more accurate to him than it is to us. That's the thing that we often forget, that it just as uh, well pr- uh, applies to us when we start thinking that way about sinners acting like Sinners, right? So when we read our text today, we're going to see a great contrast between Peter and Jesus. And we're not going to just focus on Peter's failure and our failure. That that wouldn't bring much hope for us, would it? If we're just looking at the problem. We're going to look at uh, Peter's failure, though, as the background to Jesus's faithfulness. And as we do that, what we're going to see is Jesus shining brightly through Peter's sin to be the main picture that we should be getting out of this. So what we're going to ultimately see is that though Peter denies Jesus, yes, it happens. Jesus does not deny Peter. And what that means for us is that the faithfulness of Jesus is bigger than our failure. That's what we're going to see this morning as we look at this text in John chapter 18, verses 15 through 27. These are the words of God. Let's give attention to them this morning, church, as we read. Simon Peter followed Jesus. So did another disciple. Since that disciple was known to the high priest, he entered with Jesus into the courtyard of the high priest. But Peter stood outside at the door. So the other disciple, who was known to the high priest, went out and spoke to the servant girl, who kept watch at the door, and brought Peter in. The servant girl at the door said to Peter, You also are not one of this man's disciples, are you? He said, I'm not. Now the servant and officers had made a charcoal fire, because it was cold, and they were standing and warming themselves. Peter also was with them, standing and warming himself. The high priest then questioned Jesus about his disciples and his teaching. Jesus answered him, I've spoken openly to the world. I've always taught in synagogues and in the temple where all the Jews come together. I've said nothing in secret. Why do you ask me? Ask those who have heard me what I said to them. They know what I said. When he had said these things, one of the officers standing by struck Jesus with his hand saying, Is that how you answer the high priest? Jesus answered him, if what I said was wrong, bear witness about the wrong. But if what I said was right, why do you strike me? Annas then sent him bound to Caiaphas, the high priest. Now Simon Peter was standing and warming himself. So they said to him, you also are not one of his disciples, are you? He denied it and said, I'm not. One of the servants of the high priest, a relative of the man whose ear Peter had cut off, asked Did I not see you in the garden with him? Peter again denied it, and at once a rooster crowed. The word of God for his people. Let's pray. Fathers, we come to a very familiar text. I pray that you would speak to us this morning in such a way that cuts through any staleness. Uh, Lord, we pray, as Greg just said a minute ago, that you would cultivate our hearts through the preaching of your word. Lord, help me as I preach this morning. Anything that I say that is not of your word, I pray that it would go in one ear and right out the other. 
Lord, we want your son Jesus to be speaking to us this morning. So, Lord, help us to see him clearly in your word. Help us to see the good news for us sinners this morning. Open our hearts and our minds to see you. Give us ears to hear, eyes to see. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So if you're just jumping into this series, or maybe you've missed some of the sermons and you're a bit lost, this is the preliminary trial of Jesus. He's just been arrested in the garden after being betrayed by Judas. And the Jews and the Romans, the two big parties of that day, have taken him into custody before Annas, uh, who was a former high uh, priest who has been deposed, but still holds a lot of uh, weight to the Jewish community. That might explain a little bit of the confusion there, as you see. Uh, Annas is also the father-in-law to the current high priest, Caiaphas. So this explains why both of these men, I don't know if you noticed that or not, but both of these men are referred to as high priest in this text, while there's actually only one person who can serve as high priest at a time. So this was a two high priests, um, one who is out of office and one who is in office. So this is really an informal hearing because Annas isn't technically high priest anymore. He just holds a lot of weight and a, whole, a lot of sway. So the Jews take him first to Annas. And he's been removed or deposed uh, by the Roman government. Now Caiaphas has taken his place. So here Jesus is informally on trial, not formally at Caiaphas yet. And he's questioned about his teaching and about his disciples. Uh, but there isn't any clear charge brought to him yet. It's like they're kind of sniffing around for something. They're, they're trying to find something on Jesus to nail him down. So Jesus responds basically by saying, what I've been doing, guys, I've been doing in the open, right? In, in other words, you know what's been going on. There's not really any question about this. And then he adds that he's done it in the synagogues and the temple, which doesn't seem as important to us today because we, we often don't see the church as an organization with rules and orders. And, and I think that's to our detriment in, in many ways. But he, he says that he's been doing this within the bounds of the synagogues and the temple. So what he's saying is that he's functioned, we might say it this way, he's functioned within the church, not without the church. Like he's, he's doing it on the inside. He isn't starting tent revivals on the outside, leading people away from the religious institution of the church. He's been doing this within the boundaries of the church, in the temple, in the synagogues. He's doing it in order like he should. He's been preaching reform from within, not revolt from without. He's not trying to turn the people away from being a Jew anymore. So it's almost like he's asking, why was that not a problem then? But all of a sudden here in the middle of the night while I'm praying and doing my thing, you rip me out of here and now we have an informal trial. What's going on? Like why is this all of a sudden a problem for you now in the dark and in the secret? But it wasn't when I was doing it next to you at church, right? That's, that's what's going on here. So he says this in verse 21. Read with me. <clears throat> verse 21 says this. Why do you ask me? Ask those who have heard me what I said to them. They know what I said. So I believe what he's doing when he tells them to ask his disciples is this. He's implicitly pushing Annas to follow his own rules, to follow the rules of the law. No one could bring a charge against someone unless, and biblically that is, no one could bring a charge against someone biblically unless there were two or more what? Witnesses, right. So this pseudo high priest is essentially asking Jesus to bear witness about himself, which alone is a, an invalid procedure. Uh, but more importantly, he's trying to get Jesus to self-incriminate. 
He wants Jesus to confess something that he did wrong. And, and then he's going to try to trap Jesus into and, and doing this and slap a charge onto him. And then he'll say, well, this person, uh, he doesn't need any witnesses. He just confessed to doing this wrong thing, right? If Jesus pleads guilty to a crime, then they're going to, of course, go with whatever that crime is. Because they're just looking for something, whatever it is, to take Jesus down. They don't want Jesus around anymore. So... All of that is quite interesting uh, as it pertains to bearing witness, but we're going to come back to that idea of bearing witness in a moment. So then in the background, you have John, who that's many people who believe is the, the friend of the high priest that talks about, that brings him in. That's why he has this insider knowledge that he can write about. So John and Peter, who are the disciples of Jesus that Jesus is referring to, right? Jesus says, ask them. I've taught the disciples. You can ask them. So there, those two people, there's Annas's Two witnesses if he needs them. Right? He's saying, I got people to talk for me. If you want to witness, uh, we ask my disciples. There's two people standing right outside the door that we could lawfully move forward in this procedure. But Annas doesn't do that. Why? Because he probably realizes that Peter and John would have Jesus' back in the court setting. He doesn't want a true witness. He doesn't want a rightful case. He probably thinks uh, that, that Peter and John would wreck this whole thing. So, so he's fearing that their truth would trump his conspiracy. They, they would bring it to an end. And, and once they had two witnesses against the Jews, then he would be in trouble. Plus, Jesus makes a good point in verse 23, doesn't he? After he's, after he's slapped in the face, he says, basically, what exactly is the charge that we're talking about here? I just got smacked in the face. What are we, what are we here for again? So he's, he's like, I'm not sure I understand why I've been arrested, and now I'm on this kind of pseudo, uh, under-the-table trial. If I'm wrong, bear witness. That's the word he uses. Bear witness. Okay? So the court is infuriated and looking for anything that they can get because they just want to take Jesus down. Now, as I said, there's kind of a background picture here. You have John who followed Jesus in and was able to get in because he knew Annas. He knew the high priest. So he starts to pull strings and he gets the servant girl to allow Peter in too. But Peter's a wreck. <laughs> You look at Peter, and it's a good thing that Peter wasn't called to testify for Jesus because he's denying Jesus left and right, right? He does it three times. And I want to show you this morning something about this denial, and that is why it's particularly sinful. At the end of this sermon, you might think that I'm uh, diminishing the sin of Peter. Don't hear me saying that at all. But I, I want to make clear right now what is the particular sin, and that is as it pertains to bearing witness, okay? You've probably noticed by now that John's gospel has a heavy emphasis upon bearing witness. If you go back and you read, you notice that he talks about bearing witness a lot. The Holy Spirit does this. John the, the Baptist does this. There's bearing witness that happens a lot that John is really uh, concerned about. So, And then in verse 23, this motif resurfaces. Jesus talks about it, bearing witness. So bearing witness, it's not just in John's gospel. It's actually all through the Bible. If you look back in the Old Testament, you would see that it's thoroughly embedded into the Mosaic law, into the Pentateuch. And it starts with the Ten Commandments. Do you remember the Ninth Commandment? Thou shalt not bear false witness against thy neighbor. Okay, so it started there, and then it's referred to often in the procedural scriptures, as we might call them, uh, about the application of God's law. How do the Ten Commandments then apply to real life? You see all these scriptures, well, if this happens, then that, and then, right, you see, you see it played out in the Old Testament about how we should carry this idea of false witness. And then you see law, such as the one who bears false witness and is caught bearing false witness, 
should serve the sentence of the one he is trying to falsely accuse. In other words, if I say that you're lying and I'm caught in my lie, I should serve that sentence that I was trying to slap on him. Right. So that kind of brings some light to how Jesus is thinking about this trial and and false witness and things like that. So this, again, it it brings up the substitutionary overtones of Jesus's trial, doesn't it? Jesus actually becomes and serves things for us. Okay, so in biblical law, those bearing false witness were guilty and the penalty of the accused is supposed to be served by them. So because they were bearing false witness uh, against Jesus, they are now guilty and biblically accountable to the very same penalties that they were trying to trap Jesus in. They were the guilty ones, and they now deserved whatever they were trying to slap on Jesus. And as we all know, interestingly enough, we know the end, right? Jesus served that penalty for them as their substitute. Okay? We'll come back to this idea again of substitutionary atonement throughout uh, this series as we get closer and closer to the cross. But... You know, it's, it's easy to lose the modern-day meaning of something like bearing witness. It, it seems very Bible-like. That's like Christianese, isn't it? We, we say the word bearing witness, and it really doesn't connect much to us today. We're like, okay, what does that even mean? But it would behoove us if we looked at the Scriptures and reacquainted ourselves with God's Word, because this is God's choice of words, right? He, he decided to say bearing witness. He decided to make the ninth commandment, thou shalt not bear witness. So... We should reacquaint ourselves with the language that Jesus chooses. So when we hear bearing witness in the scriptures, we should connect it to something like telling the truth. Truth telling is bearing witness. And bearing false witness or false testimony is telling a what? A lie. Okay, so truth telling and lying. In modern language, we would say Peter was lying about not being a follower of Jesus. And Jesus is questioning the officers, if what he said was a lie, then tell me what the truth is. Tell me what the truth of this situation is. So how does this apply to us personally? How does it connect back to us? This is a very contextual situation that we're looking at here. How does it affect us? What does it mean for me? Well, it would be easy to try to make a really close, tight-knit, one-to-one application and say, well, I might see how this would apply in maybe a court trial or a jury setting, but I don't have any of that going on, right? So I'm excused. This doesn't really apply to me. Well, perhaps not. Perhaps you don't have that going on. But suppose you are called one day to serve jury duty. Suppose you are called as a witness one day. Maybe it's even in the midst of a really nasty custody battle over children in a divorce case. That happens, right? People get divorced, and people are called as witnesses to tell the truth. Right? You are called to tell the truth, not to tell what will benefit your family or your side of the family, but to simply tell the truth. So maybe it's something like that. Maybe it's something a little less formal. Maybe it's HR has called you in and your job is on the line or another person's job is on the line. Are you going to tell the truth or are you going to tell what gets you your job the next day? Right? It, it starts to apply really quickly. Maybe it's not even that formal. Maybe it's some smaller institution where there aren't that big of consequences. Maybe it's a church, a school, a city council. Who knows? But the, the, the reality is, is it connects to us, and there's all kinds of smaller applications that we really need to bring close to us. Many of us, if not all of us, will find ourselves being asked to bear witness at some point in life. If you haven't already, you will one day. I can almost assure you of it. Because bearing witness is simply telling the truth. It's telling the truth. And maybe it's much less formal. Maybe it's something more like a, a gossipy conversation that ends up way bigger than you imagined. 
Have you seen this kind of thing play out before? Right? What, what you thought was a, a private cheap shot at someone with their back turned to you was nothing more than a, a snowball that uh, would have gone poof and been gone if it had hit the person. But what you came to realize is that when you missed the person the first time, that snowball hit the ground rolling in the mouth of someone else, and that snowball turned into an avalanche. Right? It got way bigger than you intended it to, way quicker than you realized, and, and the consequences ended up coming back to that person when you never even meant for that person to go through any of it. All you wanted to do was take a cheap shot. That happens. That happens. Okay? And I've seen this happen over and over, and it's really quite sad because you can ruin someone's person, uh, their, 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 uh, their fame. You can ruin their, uh, their standing in a society. You can bring them through all kinds of stuff by some little cheap shot that you made in a gossipy conversation, and you never thought that it would get back to them, but somehow it does. Okay? So what starts out as a small group of people who, who disagree with someone, they don't like what they're doing, they don't really have any real uh, accusation, no charge, right? Thinking about Jesus' case. No real charge, they just don't like him. They don't like what he's doing. Starts out there, and that group of people starts slowly stretching the truth. But they do it in narrative form, so it's sneaky, right? They bear false witness in a very sly kind of way. They do it by telling a story. Because stories is where you can start to stretch that kind of thing, isn't it? Right? They, they tell a story of that person, but they tell it in a bad light. Right? That person starts to look more and more guilty as they tell the story. And they start telling half-truths. They'll tell the facts of the story. They'll say, this happened, that happened. But they'll tell it from their slanted angle. And when they tell it from their slanted angle... They're implying guilt upon the person when the person may have not actually done anything wrong. That's where Jesus was. Right? So, so the, and when that happens, a person is counted guilty by the group even though they're actually innocent. And this is where Jesus is in this trial. He is counted as guilty by the people even though he is actually innocent. But then in the background, you have Peter on the other hand. And Peter's lying. And because Peter's lying, Peter is counted as innocent, even though he is actually guilty. Notice the two states of being here. Peter is counted as innocent, though guilty. Jesus is counted as guilty, though innocent. And this is how the gospel starts to speak to this situation, doesn't it? Where those two things get swapped. And this is how I want to apply it to your life. I want you to see how easy it is to bear false witness, to lie. That, that, that's one thing I want you to see. But also how Jesus remains faithful and becomes the foreground of our story when we start to look at our lives through the lens of the gospel. Jesus' faithfulness is bigger than our failure. This is why Peter's thrice denial quickly becomes dim in the light of Jesus' faithfulness. In the light of what Jesus is doing, it almost doesn't matter anymore what Peter did. Peter can be restored and move forward, and we're still looking at Jesus. We're not hung up on Peter's sin. And it's the same for us, where we don't have to be hung up on our sin. We can move forward in the light of Jesus and what he's done for us. So we all point fingers at Peter and say things like, three times. Really, Peter? Three times? Jesus even told you you were going to do it three times, and you still did it. But remember that this all happened in one evening. It was real quick how this happened, right? It's not like Peter followed Jesus just to deny him. That's what we start to think of Peter, don't we? We look at him in a really bad light and we say, Peter, he was just out to get Jesus. What was he doing? It's like, no, no, he wasn't. Peter wasn't following Jesus just so he could deny him. Peter didn't see that coming. 
Peter didn't think that he was going to do that. Peter loved Jesus. That's why he was following Jesus. He was following Jesus because he was caring about him. He wanted to know what was going to happen to his friend. He was following Jesus because he loved him as a sinner does in weakness. Peter loved Jesus in weakness. And I think Peter lied in fear. I think he was scared. And that's what controlled him to lie. I think he was caught off guard and scared for his life when the slave girl asked him if he was a follower of Jesus. Peter's like, if I say, yeah, I might get killed. So in fear, he's saying this, not because he hated Jesus. That's not why he denied Jesus three times. I think he immediately sunk in his gut at what he did. He realized, oh, no, I love Jesus. I just denied that this guy has done so much for me. He even said he was gonna, that I was going to do this. I think he sunk when he did that. And before he could even sort things out in his head, he was asked again the same question. But this time, he was even more scared because he knew if he told the truth now, then he was for sure going to be caught in his lie. If he tells the truth now, well, then this person's going to say, wait a second, you're a follower of Jesus? How did you get in here? Slave girl. Did you let this guy in that's a follower of Jesus? He told me he was, and he lied. See? Peter really quickly was caught up in a snowball of lies. So he, he was holding on to the fact that, yes, I've lied, but he, he really just wanted out. He wanted out of that situation. So Peter, in fear, chose the weak way out. He lied. He lied. He lied to cover the lie, to cover the lie. And I would go uh, so far as to even say that he probably said to himself in his mind, you know what, after I get out of the hot seat, after I get out of this building and get away from these people, I am never going to lie again. It probably impressed upon his soul that he would never lie again. And you know what? Peter might not have. Who knows? Those kind of things have a real effect on us. But, but I just want you to see that this is the slippery slope of bearing false witness, church. You are not immune to it. Just because you're a Christian does not mean that you will not ever lie. Bearing false witness, lying, that's what it is, it destroys communities, though. It, 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 it breeds disunity. In all kinds of contexts. It feeds factions and splits. And it can even lead to the death of someone. Think of Jesus. That's how it all started. With a, a group of lies. All of which Jesus hates. Jesus hates those splits. Jesus hates that disunity. Jesus hates for people to be in that kind of internal turmoil. He hates for people's names to be drugged through the mud. You know what though? Jesus prays for us. That we might be one. Even as he and the Father are one. And you know what he told Peter? Peter... Satan has wanted to take you and sift you like wheat. But you know what? I've prayed for you. Jesus prays for you, church. I want you to realize that when we're thinking about situations like this where you're all caught up in it and you're like, I don't even know how to get Jesus is how to get out. Jesus is how we get out. So there's the personal application. But this is a lot bigger than individuals, isn't it? Lying isn't just an individual problem. It becomes a cultural problem. So there's a, there's a real cultural application that we have here because I believe that we live in a culture of lies. And I don't say that lightly. We live in a culture of lies, in a culture that has false witness embedded into it. That's the way that we function, especially in our country. And a very important thing to realize as we read this story is how lies build up momentum to eventually lead to a culture of lies. Not just a lie, but living in lies. And what began as a very secretive conspiracy against Jesus slowly led to an open and public trial that the masses believed in. Right? It happened really small at first, but at the end, what was it? You, you, you look at back at the crucifixion, you think, what an outrage. Uh, but if I were there, I would have not done that. I would have not been saying crucifying. But guess what? The masses were. If you were part of the masses, then you would have been there too. 
Everyone was saying crucify him. No one was standing up for Jesus. Not one person. Yeah, there were some people standing by, but you know what? They kept a little bit of distance. No one was standing up for Jesus' defense. He stood there alone. Not because they hated Jesus personally, though. Think about that. They weren't saying crucify him, crucify him, because they personally hated Jesus. They were saying crucify him, crucify him, because they were fed lies. They believed a lie. And because they believed the lie, they were acting on that lie. And that had real consequences. So here's a fun exercise for you. I'm going to take some shots. Swap Fox News and CNN. We're going to go there. With made-up news media outlets back in Jesus' day. Let's call it Jewish Daily and the Roman Report. How about that? Okay. Here you have these, these two media outlets, the Roman left and the Jewish right-wing media outlets of that day. Then you have a somewhat similar predicament that we are in today, don't we? Right. You have the left and the right over here. Two seemingly opposed institutions that, oh no, they've conspired together to, to feed the masses a bunch of lies that benefit the both of them. Whoa. Starts to hit home pretty quick, doesn't it? You realize that Jesus wasn't way off there in a different context. It happens pretty often, right? And that thing, it doesn't happen overnight. There was a time when those two sides were really far apart. There was a time when Judaism and the Roman Empire were very disconnected. But Jesus seems to bring those two together where they can unite on something, isn't it? They can unite on the fact that we both hate Jesus and we'll take them down together. Otherwise, the Romans don't like the Jews. They're really annoying. The Jews don't really like the Romans. They're trying to control them, right? They don't like each other until they find someone to come together in unity, but in unity and hate to take him down. So it's a gradual slope. It doesn't happen overnight. It's a daily dose of half-truth. It's a stretch of the truth here, a little there, on this side, on that side, a dinner table conversation to help further inflate the lie, a behind-closed-door that has some money involved to get the ball rolling into a new story that will get the people to eat that lie. That's how it happens. We are a culture that is built upon lies. And I Think about this, church. Lies are literally, and I'm using that word rightly, they are literally thick in the air as they travel through the radio waves. They're all around us. We live in a culture of lies. The big question is, is how do you stop it? How do you stop the lies? I'm going to give us a couple ways. To stop the lies, you have to first support or stop supporting the lies. That's the first way. Stop supporting the lies. Stop talking about questionable stories that you've heard on the news. Okay? Do you realize that if you carry a false news story and pass it on to another person, you are bearing false witness, which is breaking the ninth commandment? Let me say that again. If you carry on a false news story, it's not true, and you pass it on to another, you are bearing false witness. Now, it's easy to say, well, you thought that they were telling the truth. You thought you were telling the truth. But if the story that you're telling isn't a true witness then it's a false witness. And you may feel exempt from this because you didn't know it was a lie. But church, let me ask you this. If you didn't know that it was the truth, why did you tell it? There's the thing. If you don't know that it's the truth and you can't be a real witness to it, then don't witness to it. Don't say something unless you know that it's true. At best, this is gossip. At worst, it's bearing false witness. It's, it's breaking the nine commandment. Either of these, though, should be taken seriously. We can't take this lightly. Not just because it's wrong. It is wrong. 
It's breaking the commandments. But because lies almost always affect someone else's livelihood. Thou shalt not bear false witness. Finish it. Against thy neighbor. It's not just a God problem. It's a problem with your neighbors. This is why we have defamation laws. This is why we have slander laws. Because when you lie, it affects other people's livelihood. It's not just about you. It's about the culture. And if we don't stop those kind of things, then we can't stop that kind of thing from happening. The defamation, the slander. Now think about this. Do you think the crowds who shouted crucify him were excused in the eyes of God from the death of Jesus, his son, because they were lied to themselves? Could they say, well, we, we, thought, he was, we thought he was guilty to God? Can you tell God that? That I killed your son, but I'm sorry, I thought he was bad. No, it, that doesn't work. Their lies cost Jesus his life. Because they were lying, Jesus died. And now this helps us see the phrase, Jesus died for my sins, in a little bit different light, doesn't it? We talk about that all the time. I want to keep coming back to this. Jesus died for my sins. What does that mean? How are we connecting our sin to the cross? We often think, well, Jesus just did it so I could get out. But, but there's a real sense in which because we are sinning and participating in the sin, we put Jesus on the cross. Jesus died for my sins. That's a big statement. So what makes it any different when we casually in a coffee shop support a lie we watched on the news? No, you may not be support. Or you, you may not be shouting crucify him. You're not saying it from, from the rooftops, crucify him, crucify him. But massive consequences are still at play, even if it's casual, even if it's quiet. Your conversation might create angst among the room, probably will. If it's in a coffee shop. Bunch of old men together, they can get riled up, right? It, it happens. Then one of the listeners might hop on social media and start to rant publicly. Right? It gets out a little bit bigger. And then perhaps thousands of people have just complicitly carried on this narrative of lies. They've liked it, they've shared it, and it's going around. And before you know it, someone is having their name drug through the mud because of your gossip. Maybe it's, I'm not just talking about national news. I'm talking about local news. I heard this or that. You carry that on, and it starts to have consequences. So the first way that we stop the lies is by stop telling the lies. If you don't know that it's the truth, don't say it. There is life and death where? In the power of the tongue. There are real consequences to our words. It's not a sin to hear a lie. It's a sin to tell one. So we stop gossiping in its tracks by not telling lies. The second way we stop the lies is by not even tolerating them. So yes, we don't say them, but also we don't tolerate lies. It's not a sin to hear a lie, but you know what? If we're honest, it's tempting to retell it once we're heard it. That's, that's a temptation. If you're surrounding yourself all the time in a culture of lies and letting yourself hear it, it's tempting to say that lie because it'll probably benefit you in some way. But it will be at the expense of someone else. That's, that's the reason that we most often tell lies. It's going to get me something that I want at the expense of someone else. Okay? But if we adopt a no-tolerance policy for lies, this deters the presence of lies. If we shut it down every time, people will eventually quit telling you the lies if you say, I don't want to hear it. Do you know that's true? What's your source? Did you see that happen? Shut it down. Shut the lies down. There isn't anything wrong with discussing politics. Don't hear me saying that. But over the years, and it's been bigger than my lifetime even, politics has become social slander. Where we're publicly slandering people. Okay. Much less often are political conversations actually about policies. I think that happened a pretty long time ago. We very, very rarely actually are talking about politics when we say we're talking about politics. Politics now are, did you hear what this person did? 
Did you hear that dirt that this person has on that person? Did you hear what this person did? Right? It's, it's all this and that back and forth, right? How much dirt one person has on the other side. That's what the two main media news outlets are doing today. It's no longer political debate. They're not debating anymore. They're just talking about, hey, we have news that this, this came out. They've been keeping this secret for years. Oh, no. Guess what? They have something, too. It's back and forth. And you see that there's just dirt everywhere. And then you step back for a second and you say, wow, both of you guys are really dirty. It's dirt everywhere. And then you look around and you're like, oh, man, I've been moving around a lot of dirt. <laughs> I, I, I've been pretty complicit in all this. I've listened to both of you guys. I've, I've went back and forth. I've tried to filter through all this. And what I've just come to realize is that this is a bunch of garbage. It's a bunch of lies. It's not doing anything. It's not political debate. All it is is slander. It's back and forth trying to further push my agenda. That's what it's really about. I want to get something out of this, so I'll keep pushing that lie forward. So someone's going to say, there's going to be an objection in the room, I think, in your mind at least. But someone will say, well, how in the world are we supposed to know what's going on? If we're not watching the news, well, well, how do we know? If we don't watch the news, how will we know the way to vote? If we don't watch the news, how will we know the truth? If we don't watch the news, how can I live my life in darkness? How can I live that way? If those questions resonated with you, I set you up, by the way. I use I use those words specifically. If those questions resonate with you, I want you to check yourself. Because the news, if you've done this, and it resonates in your mind, and that connects, and you're like, yeah, that's true. How will we? If news is the way to vote, if news is the truth, and news is life amid the darkness, you've committed a pretty crazy idolatry. You've replaced Jesus with the news. Because Jesus is the way the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but by Jesus, not the news. The news isn't what gives you light in the world. Jesus is what gives you light in the world. News is not the answer that combats lies. As much as all those news news agencies say that same thing, it's not. they, They are not the answer. Jesus is. The guidance of Jesus and how he leads us into all truth That is where we get the answer to this problem of a culture of lies. Besides, the news isn't teaching you how to think. If you didn't realize this, it's teaching you what to think. The news is teaching you what to think. Jesus, on the other hand, he transforms us by the renewing of our minds so that we think a different way. He doesn't just swap blue facts for red facts and say, no, you don't need that. You need this. That's not how he does it. He becomes not the facts that we bump into throughout life. He becomes the light that illuminates our path. That helps us to be clearly seeing where, oh, I need to walk around that there. And as we look at Jesus in this trial that he's in, look at how he does this. How he remains innocent through all of this. So when we look at Jesus here, he's not just teaching us how to not lie. He's also teaching us how to think Christianly. How to tell the truth when you're in a hard situation where you want to tell a lie, where you could get out of the situation by telling a lie, but you don't. Jesus does something, and he offers us something that no one else can offer us. So uh, let me give a little bit of gospel application, and then we'll close this morning. What we learn from this story here is that Jesus doesn't just tell the truth. He is the truth. Okay? And Jesus tells the truth and is the truth for his his life is for Peter, for sinners like you and me. He is that for us. When we look to Jesus in faith, we exchange our identity of liar for the identity of a truth teller. 
That's where that swap happens, that substitution that we were talking about a minute ago. And when we come to him, we realize that he has already served the sentence of a liar as one who has bore false witness about his neighbor. Jesus took that sentence, and he didn't do anything. He, he paid that price for people who did do it like me, like you. And what this also means is that Jesus doesn't just die for liars as serving as their substitute. Yes, he does this, but he also tells the truth for liars as their righteousness. That, that's something different. Jesus stops the lies by standing in the way of the consequences and says, no more. I am the end of lies. I am the truth. And because of what Jesus did in his death, which is dying the death of a liar, we're forgiven for our sins. But that's not enough. Because of what Jesus did in his life, which has always told the truth, he always bore witness like he should, we stand before God not just as neutral. We don't just need our sins taken away so that we're guiltless. But Jesus stands in so that we can be righteous. His righteousness, his truth-telling righteous merits can be counted to us as sinners. That's a beautiful thing to think about that. We are not saying, hear me clearly, what we're not saying when we say that the truth of Jesus kind of covers our lies is that because Jesus told the truth, we don't have to. Let's sin so that grace may abound. That's not what I'm saying. I don't want to diminish the sin of bearing false witness at all. But what we mean, though, is that in light of the gospel, when we look at Jesus who has kept the commandments of God in every circumstance, including the ninth commandment that says do not bear false witness, he has done that for us. He has fulfilled the law for us. So instead of having the violation of the ninth commandment counted to us when we sin, it is counted to Jesus if we truly believe in him. And if we truly believe in Jesus, it is counted to us. His righteousness is counted to us. Think about that. And in that righteousness, it's not just drawn from some arbitrary tank of righteousness that God keeps up in reserves in heaven so that when someone needs some righteousness, he can just give it to someone. That's not how it works. The righteousness that God has, that he counts to us, is drawn directly from the righteousness of Jesus in his earthly life as he obeyed the law. Like this trial. What he's doing right there, that rightness that Jesus is doing in this trial, is being counted to us so that we are counted as those who do not bear false witness. His, his right actions are counted to us even while we're sinning. When we, when we believe in Jesus, that's the swap that we get to make. That's the beauty of the gospel that while Peter's denying Jesus, Jesus isn't denying Peter. Right? Jesus says, ask my disciples about my teaching. Ask my disciples. Let them bear witness. Right? It's a beautiful thing. So in theology, this is called the active obedience of Christ. The passive obedience is his death. Right? We talk about that a lot. But much less often do we talk about the active obedience of Christ that's counted to us who believe. That means not only his death makes us sinless in the eyes of God, passive, but his life makes us righteous in the eyes of God. What Jesus did makes us righteous. God sees us as, as truth tellers even if we lie because of the cross of Christ. Because of the life of Jesus. So the truth of Jesus covers our lies. Jesus was counted as a liar in this trial for us. So that when we stand before God the Father, we are counted as Jesus. As a truth teller. That's what this trial means to us. When we look at the life of Jesus, it's not some way out there abstract thing that happened to Jesus way long ago. There's a lot of overlap. And the overlap is the good news of the gospel of how it applies to us of what Jesus did for us. Jesus went through this trial for you who believe. He was righteous for you who believe. He'll die, and we'll see that soon in the gospel, but he's righteous for you. That's good news for sinners like you and me that otherwise would have that sin of lying counted to us when we stand before the Father. Amen?
Let's pray. Lord, we need your help. We can't do this. We often find ourselves uh, like Peter, realizing that we need help. Lord, we thank you that there is a difference between Peter then and us now, that we've been given the Holy Spirit, the Comforter, and your Holy Spirit helps us to lead us and guide us into all truth. Lord, we pray that you would help us to to love you as spirit-filled Christians, that we would not be weak. And when we are weak, we thank you, Father, that your word says that we have an advocate, that we can come to you, that we're reminded of the good news of the gospel, that you look at us and you don't see our sin, but you see a different story. You see the righteousness of 